Last House in C Street by Miss Krennic Diana or Diana Morlock. I am not a believer in ghosts in general. I see my good no good in them. They come that is reported to come so irreverently, purposelessly, so ridiculously, in short, that one's common sense as regards this world, one's supernatural sense of other are unlike are like revolted. Then ten out of nine out of ten capital ghost stories are so easily accounted for, and in a tenth, while a natural explanation follows, one has discovered the extraordinary difficulty there is in all society in getting hold of that very slippery article called a fact is strongly inclined to shake a dubious head collating evidence a question of evidence but my unbelief springs from no dogged or contemporary scepticism as to the possibility however great the improbability of that strange impression upon or communication to spirit and matter from spirit wholly immaterialized which is vaguely called a ghost there is no credibility more blind no ignorance more childish than that of the sage who tries to measure heaven and earth the things under the earth with a small two-foot rule of his own brains dare we presume to argue concerning any mystery of the universe is inexplicable and more Im- therefore impossible presuming presuming there are options there through s- those simple as options simply as options i am about to relate what i must confess to me if far a ghost story is it it is internal with circumstantial evidence being indisputable while its physiological cause and results though are not easy of explanation are still more difficult to explain away the ghost like Hamlet's was a gentle was an oddest ghost from her daughter an old lady who bless her good and gentle memory has since learned the secrets of all things I learnt this variable tale. My dear, said Mrs. MacArthur to me, it was the, uh, in the early days of table moving when young folk ridiculed it and older folk was shot at the notion of calling one's at one's departed ancestors unto one's dinner, ta- dinner table and learning the wonders of the genic world of the bobbings of the hat or the twirlings of the plate my dear, continued the old lady, I do not like playing at ghosts. Why not? Do you believe in them? A little? Did you ever see one? Never, but, I once, heard, but once I heard. She looked serious, as if she hardly liked, liked to speak about it, either from a sense of awe or from fear or ridicule. But no one could have laughed at any illusions of the gentle old lady who never uttered a harsh or satirical word into a living soul, and it's evident, was rather remarkable in one that had a large stock of common sense, little wonder, and no identity. I was rather curious to hear Miss, hear Miss Arthur's ghost story. My dear, it was long ago, so long, 
you may fancy I forgot to conf- and confuse the circumstances, but I do not. Sometimes I think one recalls more clearly things what happened in one's teens. I was eighteen that year, when a great many nearer events than a great nearer many nearer events. Besides, I had other reasons for remembering vividly everything belonging to this time. For I was in love, you must know. She looked at me with a mild, depreciating smile, as if hoping my youthfulness would not consider the thing so very impossible or ridiculous. No, I was all, all interest at once. In my love for Mr. MacArthur, I said scarcely a question. Being at the time, at, at that Arcadian time of life, where one takes a natural necessary and believes as an undoubtful truth, everybody marries his or her first love. No, my dear, not with Mr. MacArthur. I was so astonished, so completely dumbfounded, for I had woven a sort of an ideal round, my good old friend, that I surprised Mrs. MacArthur to knit in silence for a full five minutes. My surprise is not lessened when she said, with a little smile, he was a young gentleman of good parts. He was very fond of me, proud too, rather, for though you might think not think, my dear, I was actually a beauty in those days. I had very little doubt of it. The sight of little life figure and tiny hands and feet, if you had walked behind Mrs. My Arthur, you might have taken her for a young woman still. Certainly people lived slower and easier in the last generation than in ours. Yes, I was a beauty above. Mr. Everest fell in love with me there. I was much gratified, for I had just been reading Mrs. Burley's Celera. I thought him exactly like Baltimore Devil, Devel, a very pretty tale. Celia, did you ever read it? No, and to arrive at her tale, I leaped to the only conclusion that could reconcile the two facts of having had a lover named Everest and being now Mrs. MacArthur. Has it, was it his ghost you saw? No, my dear, no, thank goodness. He is still alive. He calls here sometimes. He's been a good friend to our family. Ah, with a slow shake of her head, half pleased, half pensive. You must hardly believe, my dear, what a very pretty fellow he was. One could scarcely smile at the old phrase for training to last century volume novels, and to the loves of great-grandmothers. I listened patiently to the wandering references, which still delayed the ghost story, but Miss MacArthur was in Bath. That you saw or heard what I think you were going to tell me? A ghost, you know. Don't call it that, as it sounds if you are laughing at it. And you must not. But it is really true, as true as I sit here, an old lady of seventy-five, and then I was a young gentlewoman of eighteen. Nay, my dear, I will tell you all about it. We have been staying in London, my father and my mother, Mr. Everest and I. He had persuaded them to take me. He wanted to show me a little of the world, though it is not 
a narrow but a narrow road, my dear. He was a lordster, living poorly and working hard. He took lodgings of us near the temple in C Street, a last house there, looking on to the river. He was very fond of the river, often of evenings when his work was too heavy to let him take us to the Renned Lake to or to the play. We, he used to walk with my father, mother, me, up and down the temple gardens. Were you ever in the temple gardens? It is a pretty place now, a quiet grey nook in the midst of noise and bustle. The stars look wonderful through the great trees, but still it is not like that it was ever then. When, when I was a girl, oh no, impossible. It was the temple gardens, my dear, that I remember we took our last walk. My mother, Mr. Everest, and I, before she went home to Bath, she was very anxious and restless to go. Besides, too delicate for London's gaieties. Besides, she had a large family at home, of which I was the eldest. We were anxiously expecting the youngest in a month or two. Nevertheless, my dear mother had gone about with me, taking me to all the shows and sights that I, a hearty and happy girl, longed to see and entered into them, almost as great enjoyment as my own. But tonight she was pale, rather grave, and steadfastly bent on returning home. We did all but all we could to persuade her to come to the country, for on the last night but one she had been cramming treat to all to all our London pleasures, we were to see Hammett or Drury Lane with John Tim Trim Kimble and Cyrus Siddons. Think of that, my dear. Oh, you have no such sights now. Even my grave father longed to go and urged his mild way that we should put off our departure. But my mother was determined. At last, Miss Everest said, I could show you the very spot where he stood with the, with the river. It was, high, it was high water, lapping against the wall, and the evening sun shining on the south houses opposite. He said, it is very wrong. Of course, my dear, but then he was in love, and might be excused. Madam, said he, it is the first time I ever knew you think of yourself alone. Myself, Edwin? Pardon me, but could it not be possible for you to return home, leaving behind for two days only Mr. Fate and Mistress Dorothy? Leave them behind? Leave them behind, she moved over the words. What do you say, Dorothy? It was, I was silent. In very truth, I had never been parted from my, her all my life. I had never crossed my mind to wish apart from her or enjoy any pleasure without her. Till within the next last three months, mother don't suppose. But here I caught sight of Mr. Everest and stopped. Pray continue, Mistress Bowery. No, I could not. He looked so vexed, so hurt. He'd been so happy. We'd been so happy together. Also, we might not meet again for years. The journey between London and Bath as was then a serious one. Even for lovers, he worked every very hard and had very few pleasures in his life. He did indeed seem almost selfish to my mother. Through my lips said nothing, 
Perhaps my sad eyes said only too much. My mother felt it. She walked with us a few yards, slowly and cheerfully. I could see her now, with pale, tired face, upon the cherry-coloured ribbons of her hood. She had been very handsome as a young woman, and was sweet-looking still, my dear, good mother. Dorothy, we should know... We will no longer discuss this. I am very sorry, but I must go home. However, I will persuade your father to remain with you till the week's end. Are you satisfied? No, was my third, first final impulse of my heart. But Miss Everest pressed my arm with such an entreating look that almost against my will I answered yes. Mr. Everest overwhelmed my mother with his delight and gratitude. He, he walked up and down for some time longer, leaning on to his arm. She was very fond of him. When she looked, they stood looking on the river, upwards and downwards. I suppose this is my last walk in London. Thank you for all the care you have taken of me. And when I am gone home, mind, oh mind, Edmund, that you take care of Dorothy. These words and the tone in which they were spoken fixed themselves on my mind. First, from gratitude, but not a minge, with regret, as if they had been so considerate to her as she to me offers, but we often err, my dear, in dwelling not too much on the word. We infinite creatures have only to deal with us now. Nothing whatever to do with afterwards. In this case, I have ceased to blame myself or others. Whatever was being passed was right to be could not have been otherwise. My mother went home the next morning alone. We had were to follow in a few days, though. She had not allowed us to fix any time. The departure so hurried. I remember nothing about it, save her answer to my father's urgent desire. Almost command that if anything was amiss, she immediately let him know. Under all circumstances, wife... He reiterated, and this you promise? I promise. Oh, when she was gone, he declared, she'd not have been have said it so earnestly, since we should be at home almost as soon as slow boat co- bath coach could take her and bring us a letter. Besides, there's nothing likely to happen. We visited a great deal, being unused to her absence in their happy wedded life. He was like most men. Glad to blame anybody but himself. The whole day and next was cross at intervals with both Edmund and me, but we bore it and patiently. Is it be all right when we get him to the theatre? He has no real cause for anxiety about her. What a dear woman she is, and a precious your mother, Dorothy. And I rejoice to hear my lover speak thus. I thought them hardly ever was a young woman, gentlewoman, so blessed as I. We went to play. Ah, you know nothing of what a play is nowadays. You never saw John Kipple and Mrs. Siddons. For though in dresses and shows, it was far inferior to Hamlet. You took me to see last week. Oh dear, my dear. And though I perfectly well remember being at the point of laughing, when in a most solemn scene, it's almost clearly evident that ghosts been drinking, strangely enough, not after events connected therewith. Nothing sub- 
Squidward ever drove from my mind a vivid impression of his first play. Strange also the play should have been hammered. Do you think that Shakespeare believed in what people call ghosts? I could not say, but I thought Mrs. MacArthur's ghost very long in coming. Don't, my dear, don't do anything but laugh at it. She vividly affected. I was about an effort that she proceeded in her story. I wish you to understand exactly my position that night. A young girl, her head full of enchantment on the stage, a heart, something not less it's grossing. Mr. Everett had supped with me, leaving us both the best of spirits. Indeed, my father had gone to bed laughing heartily at the remembrance of our antics of Mr. Garibaldi, which had almost obliterated the Queen and Hamlet from his memory, on which the ridiculous always took a far stronger hold than the awful or sublime. I was sitting, let me see, at the window, chatting to my maid, Patty, who was brushing the powder out of my hair. The window was open, halfway, and looking out on the Thames of summer night, being very warm and starry, almost like shutting out of doors, sitting outdoors. There was none of the awe given by the solitude of midnight. Closed room, when very every, every sound is magnified and every shadow seems alive. As I said, we were chattering and laughing for Patty, and I were both very young, and she was had a sweetheart too. She like every one of the household was a warm admirer of Mr. Everett's. I had been half scolding, half smiling, and I praised him when St. Paul's great clock came booming over the silent river. Eleven counted Patty, terrible late for me, Mrs. Dorothy. Not like bath hours, I reckon. Mother, we'll have been in bed an hour ago, said I, with a little self-reproach, and not being thought of her till now. The next minute my maid and I both started with similar explanation. Did you hear that? Yes, a bat flying against the window. But the teases are open, Mrs. Mistress Dorothy. So they were, and there was no bird or bat or living thing about, only the quiet summer night, the river, the stars. I am certain sure I heard it. I think it was like, just a bit like somebody tapping. Nonsense, Patty, but it stuck me thus. Though I said it was a bat, it was exactly like the sound of fingers against a pane, very soft into fingers such as it was, passing into my flower garden. A flower garden, my mother often used to tap outside the schoolroom engagement. A home. I wonder, did your father hear anything? It... It, the bird, you know, Patty, might have flown at his window too. Oh, Mistress Dorothy, Patty, could not be, could not be deceived. I gave her the brush to finish my hair, but her hand shook too much. I shut the window, and we both sat facing down, facing it, down, facing it. At that minute, distinct, clear, and unmistakable, like a person moving. A summons in passing by, we heard once more the tapping on the pane, but nothing was seen, not a single shadow came between us, and the open air, the bright starlight. Seldom was I annoyed, but I was not frightened. The sound gave me even an inexplicable delight. I had hardly time to recognise my feelings, still less to analyse them when a loud cry came from my father's room. Dolly, Dolly, now my mother... 
I both had both one name, but he always gave her the old-fashioned pet name. I was inevitably Dorothy. Still, I had not paused to think, but ran to his locked door and answered. It was a long time before he took any notice, though. I heard him talking to himself and moaning. He's a subject to bad dreams, especially for his attacks of gout. So when I first said I am lightened, I stood listening, knocking at the intervals, until at last he replied, What do we want, child? Is anything the matter, father? Nothing. Go to thy bed, Dorothy. Did you not call? Do you not want anyone? Not they. Oh, Dolly, my poor Dolly. You seem to be almost sobbing. Why did I let thee leave me? Father, you're not going to be ill. It is not the gout, is it? For that was the time when he wanted my mother most. And indeed, when he was wholly unmanageable by anyone but her. Go to work, go away, get out of thy bed, Morgel. I don't want to, want to, don't want to see. I thought he was angry with me, he was having been in some sort of a case of any delay, and retired very miserably. Pat and I sat a good little longer, discussing the dreary prospect of my father having a fit of the gout here in his London lodgings with only us to nurse him. My mother away, our alarm was so great, so quite, and we quite forgot the curious circumstances which first attracted us. Still, Patty spoke up, and from her bed on the floor, I hope Master beat going to be very ill, and that, you know, came from a morning. Do you think it was a bird, Mistress Dorothy? Very lightly now, power of pity. Let us go to sleep. But I did not. But all night I heard my father groaning at intervals. I certain that it was a gout, and wished for the bottom of my heart. He, we had gone home with mother. What was my surprise when, very early, I heard him rise and go down, just as if nothing was ailing him. I found him sitting at the breakfast table, his travelling coat, looking very haggard and miserable, but eventually eventually bent on a journey. Father, you are not going to Bath? Yes, I did. Father, were you not going to Bath? Yes, I be. Not till the evening coach starts, I cried. Lan, we can't, we can't, you know. I'll take a post chassis then. We must be off in an hour. And how are the cool pain of parting, my dear? I believe I used to feel things keenly when I was young. Shot through me, through and through. A single hour, I should have said, have said goodbye to Edmund. One of those heartbreaking farewells, even when we seemed to leave half our poor life behind us. Forgetting the only real parting is when we have no love left to part from. A few years I wondered how I have a, how I could have crept away and wept in such intolerable agony and the mere bidding goodbye to Edmund Edmund who loved me Every time every minute seemed a day till he came in. As usual, to breakfast, my red eyes, my father's cold-colded trunk explained all. Dr. Fade, are you not coming? 
Not coming? Yes, I be, repeated my father. He sat moodily, leaning on the table. Would not taste his breakfast? Not till the night coach, surely. I was to take you to Mr. Starfrey to see Mr. Benjamin West, the king's painter. Let kings and painters alone, lad. I'm going, I'm going home to my dolly. Mr. Everest used many arguments, grey and grave, upon which I hung with earnest conviction and hope. He made things go so clearly. After always, he is a man of much brighter parts than my father, and had great influence over him. Dorothy, he whispered, help me persuade her, doctor. It is so long a little time, I beg, for only a few hours before, a so long a parting. Oh, longer than he thought or I. Children, cried my father at last, you are a couple of fools. Wait till you have been married twenty years. I must go to my dolly. I know there is something amiss at home. I should have felt alarmed, but I saw Miss Everest smile, and besides, I was not yet. I was yet glowing under his fond look, and my father spoke of her being married twenty years. Father, you've been surely no reason to think of for thinking this. If you have, tell us. My father just lifted his head and looked at me woefully in the face. Darfrey last night, as sure I saw it. I, as I saw you now, I saw your mother. It was that it was all cried Mr. Everest, laughing. Why, my good sir, of course you did. You were dreaming. I had not gone to sleep. How did you see her? Coming into my room, just as she used to go. Bathroom at home, with a candle in her hand, and a baby asleep on her arm. Did she speak? said Mr. Everest, with another and rather cynical smile. Remember, you saw Hamlet last night. Indeed, sir. Indeed, Dorothy. It was a mere dream. I do not believe in ghosts. It would be an insult to common sense to human wisdom, nay, even to divinity itself. Edward spoke no earnest, so earnestly, so justly, so affectionately, that be false. I agreed, but even my father became to feel rather ashamed of his own weaknesses. He is a physician, the head of the family, to yield to mere suspicious fancy, being probably from a hot supper, an over-sighted brain. To the same cause, Mr. Everest appeared another incident, which somewhat hastily I told him. Dear, it was a bird, nothing but a bird. One flew into my window last spring. It had hurt itself. I, hurt, I kept it and nursed it and petted it. It was just a pretty gentle little thing. It put me, it put me in mind of Dorothy. Did it? I said I. And at, late, at last it got well and flew away. Ah, that is not like Dorothy. Thus my father, being persuaded, was not hard to persuade me. He settled to return. It remained till evening. Edwin and I, with my pretty maid Patty, went about together, chiefly in Mr. West's cradery, in the quiet shade of a favourite temple gardens. And if with four, those four stolen hours, the sweetness in them, I afterwards suffered an untold remorse and bitterness. I have entirely forgotten myself. I had known my dear father. Mother would have forgiven me long ago. Mrs. MacArthur stopped, wiped her eyes, then continued speaking more in a matter-of-fact way than that old people speak when she done had been lately doing. Well, my dear, where was I? In the temple gardens. Yes, yes, well, we came home to dinner. My father always enjoyed his dinner. His nap afterwards, he nearly recovered himself now. 
Oh, he looked tired from his loss of rest. Edmund and I sat in the window, watching the barges and rivers upon the Thames. There were no steamboats then, you know. Someone knocked at the door with a message for my father, but he slept so heavily he did not hear. Mr. Everest went to see what it was. I stood at the window. I remember mechanically watching the red sail of Margate Hoy as the sink was going down the river, and thinking with a sharp pang how dark the room seemed. A moment with Mr. with Edwin not there. We entering after a somewhat long absence. He looked, never looked upon me, but went straight to my father. Sir, it is almost time you start. You to start. Oh, Edmund, there is a coach at the door upon me, but I think you should travel quickly. My father sprang to his feet. Dear sir, indeed, I have no need for anxiety now, for I receive the news. You have another little daughter, sir. And Dolly, Dolly, without another word, my father rushed away from his feet ahead. Leaped onto the first chassis where I was waiting and drove off. Edmund aghast, my poor little girl. My own, my own Dorothy, my tenderness of his embrace, not lover-like, but brother-like. By his tears, I never, but I could feel them on my neck. I knew as well, if he had been told me, that I should never see my dear mother any more. He and she had died in childbirth, continued the old lady, after long pause, died at night. The very hour and minute I heard the tapping of its window plane. The window plane, and my father thought he saw her coming into his room with a baby in her arm. Was the baby, baby dead too? They thought so then, but Arthur was revived. What a strange story! I did not ask you to believe it, Ned. How, why, and what was, I cannot tell. I know what that it is solely, it was so. And Mr. Everest, I inquired with some hesitation. The old lady shook her head. Oh, my dear! You soon learn how very, very seldom one marries one's first love. After that day, I did not see Miss Everest for twenty years. How wrong, how? Don't blame him. It wasn't his fault. You see, after that time, my father took a prejudice against him. Not a national, perhaps. He was not there to make things straight. Besides my own conscience, I was very sore. There was the six children at home, and the little baby had no mother. So at last, I made up my mind. I should not. Have, I should have loved him. That's the same. If we had been waited twenty years, but he should, could not see things. So don't blame him, my dear. Don't blame him. It's as well, perhaps, as things turned out. Did he marry? Yes, after a few years. I loved his wife dearly. When he was about one and a first, one and thirty. I married Mr. MacArthur. So neither of us were unhappy, you see. At least not so more so than most people. We almost, and we came to see friends afterwards. Mr. and Mrs. Everest came to see me almost every Sunday. Why, you foolish child, are you crying? Ah, I was, but scarcely at the ghost story.